Welcome everyone to today's presentation on bankruptcy and breakdown of the marriage 201 advanced topics. This is part two of a presentation that Linda Howard and Golan did in October. So this will be focused on advanced topics today. Um, we also just please ask that you keep in mind that this presentation is intended to provide you with general information and family law and should not be construed as legal advice. And now getting into our agenda. So in this one hour presentation, our presenters will be discussing the following topics. They'll be doing a quick recap of the, uh, the presentation, as I mentioned, that we did in October. So bankruptcy and breakdown of the marriage 101. Then they'll be getting into bankruptcy and the effect on equalization, bankruptcy and support obligations and litigation strategies and practice tips. And there'll also be a Q&A segment, a dedicated Q&A segment at the end of the presentation. So if you haven't already, please feel free to submit your questions through the Q&A box and we'll do our best to get to your question during the presentation. So now that you know a bit more of what's on the agenda today, it's now my pleasure to introduce today's professionals that will be presenting on today's topic. So first we have Linda Stern and Linda is a senior manager and licensed insolvency trustee at Crow Soberman Incorporated. She has over 25 years of experience working in Montreal, Ottawa and Toronto, primarily in consumer insolvency matters, consulting with individuals overwhelmed with debt and helping them find solutions that work best for their financial and personal situations. And next we have Howard Manis and Howard is a partner and senior counsel at, at Manis Law. He has been practicing bankruptcy and insolvency law and commercial litigation since his call to the bar in 1993. He provides legal advice to trustees in bankruptcy, receivers, banks, and other financial institutions, landlords, trade suppliers, and debtors in all aspects of insolvency law, including bankruptcy, proposals, reorganizations, and restructurings, enforcement of security, and in protecting rights outside of insolvency proceedings. Next, we have Golan, and Golan is an associate family lawyer and a certified mediator with over 25 years of legal experience. He was first called to the bar in Israel in 1996 and then called to the bar in Ontario in 2003, and he has extensive experience in representing clients and negotiation agreements as well as trial work. He also has experience in negotiating with the authorities to advance a client's interests and have represented clients at various levels of court, including on appeals. Next, we have Russell, and Russell is the founder and senior partner of Russell Alexander Collaborative Family Lawyers. With over 20 years of experience, Russell offers a wealth of knowledge and expertise in collaborative family law. He uses his experience with a client-focused approach by creating unique solutions for each of his clients to enable them and their families to move forward with their lives in a compassionate and collaborative manner. And now it, I will pass things over to you, Russell. Thank you so much, Shannon. Um, great introductions. Let's make a start. We've got a lot to cover today. So let's start off with our first poll. What happens if my client or the other spouse goes bankrupt during a family court case? So this is, you know, this happens. And uh, you've got a couple of options here. Just, I'm going to give everybody a minute to go through the options. I want to let everybody in our audience know we are running polls today makes it a little bit more interactive. It helps us understand where our audience is at and we can tailor our content accordingly. We have time for Q&A at the end. This program is a result of a suggestion by an audience member. We designed this program. We did 101 on this issue, which was really well received and we had requests for more. So please give us your feedback. It helps us develop new content and helps us understand if we're making um, good progress in this live event series. 
So your options today, <clears throat> okay, somebody goes bankrupt during a family court case, everything stops, continue with all claims except exempt property, continue with property claims through your trustee, ask the family court to determine equalization, lift the automatic stay to continue with your family law claims or other, which you can put in the Q&A box. Let's see what our audience thinks. Okay, everything stops. Well, 3% <clears throat> continue, 9% uh, go through the trustee, 51%, fairly big a majority there. Uh, ask the family court to determine equalization, 19%, lift the stay, 13%, and other. So Howard, what do you think of these results? Well, I, I think the answer is probably a combination of three. I right. think first you would lift the automatic stay so you could continue with your claim in family court, or you might proceed with the property claim through the trustee. So probably 83% probably got the right answer. <laughs> yeah, you're right. Linda, thoughts? I I agree with Howard. Uh, the first thought I would came to my mind is is lift the stay and continue the proceeding and take it from there. But all the others, the other two uh, as well, make sense. Yeah, and we're going to talk about this. Um, only the property aspect is going to be stayed, right? You got parenting. You've got other claims that the family court can still press on with, and we're going to get into that. So sometimes you might not even. Why even let the stay if there's nothing there, right? You know, you don't want to expend the money, but we'll talk about tips and strategy in a moment. All so fair comments, Russell, that what has to be paramount is practicality and cost. Right. Yeah. You know, are you going to go throw good money on legal fees? Just the result, there's going to be nothing there. You know, some right. there's some people who do it for improper purposes, right? They want to protract the uh, bankruptcy proceeding or cause harm to some people. So, all right, let's make a start. Um, what are bankruptcy and consumer proposals? So what we have here is a recap. We're gonna do a quick recap of our one-on-one material uh, because I think you have to have a basic understanding of some of these things to understand it more in depth, which we're gonna get into uh, today. So Linda, can you take, a, take the lead on this? Sure. Bankruptcy and consumer proposals are two debt solutions that are available to individuals through the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, which is a statute that, that is followed. Um, a licensed insolvency trustee acts as a trustee in a bankruptcy and as an administrator in the consumer proposal, and they're filed with the Office of the Superintendent of Bankruptcy, and the trustees are supervised and licensed by the Superintendent of Bankruptcy. A bankruptcy occurs when either an individual files an assignment in bankruptcy, an application is made by a creditor to put the person in bankruptcy, and the application is granted and an order is, is, is uh, an order is granted, I'm sorry, where a proposal is filed pursuant to uh, Division One of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, and it's rejected at the meeting of creditors, the individual is automatically bankrupt. But we're speaking today on consumer proposals, not division one proposals. So some quick facts on, on bankruptcy. There's an automatic stay of proceedings on legal actions, garnishments, and judgments. 
non-exempt assets such as equity and real property, investments, tax refunds, they vest in the trustee for realization and ultimate distribution to the creditors. After acquired property such as lottery winnings or inheritance also vest in the trustee. A bankrupt cannot act as a director of a corporation and most likely has to report the bankruptcy to its professional association, example, the Law Society or RICO. A bankrupt cannot sponsor an individual. In a consumer proposal as well, there's an automatic stay of proceedings, but the assets remain vested in the debtor, not in the administrator, including after acquired property. Uh, an individual or a bankrupt whose unsecured debts are 250,000 or less, excluding mortgage, can file a consumer proposal. A formal settlement is made to creditors, which is binding once it's approved or amended, it's binding on all the creditors. The administrator reports to the creditors that the realization projected in the proposal is X and a bankruptcy is Y, and therefore we recommend the acceptance of the proposal. Most consumer proposals are paid over five years in monthly payments. They can be accelerated uh, without interest or penalty. Um, credit bureaus maintain the record of the proposal for six years from the date of, of filing. In a bankruptcy, it's also six years from the date of um, of discharge, I'm sorry, from the date of discharge, or 14 years if it's a second or multiple bankruptcy. Okay, so that's, yeah, that's great. Thank you. Uh, who, how, and when? Um, Howard? Thank you. Um, what's of most interest to this audience today is two spouses are fighting. One ends up filing either a proposal or a bankruptcy, and that's how you find yourself in this situation and governed by the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. So this could happen prior to separation, post-separation. The effects are somewhat different, but um, timing doesn't really make a huge difference. It often happens either once there's a determination of equalization, or when there's a very large cost award against one spouse. Uh, those are the common instances which would push one spouse to file for some kind of insolvency protection, but there are various permutations and combinations that could result. All right, we've got some great questions coming in from our audience. Thank you very much, everybody. Let's run our next poll and find out who our audience is. Um, and we are, tell us a little bit about yourself. You've got a number of options here, uh, professional and family law, bankruptcy law, different area law, another field, um, going through a separation or divorce, helping a friend, a student, currently in bankruptcy or other. Take your time, put your answers in there. Um, this is a good question. They're all good questions. This is one that just came in. For the purposes of impact on equalization claims, does a consumer proposal have the same effect as bankruptcy? Uh, so I guess, Linda, what do you think? Are, is the family law action stayed if there's a consumer proposal or does it have to be a bankruptcy? I see Howard shaking his head. 
Howard, go ahead. I'll, I'm happy I'll to take after. that one. Uh, when you file for bankruptcy or a proposal, there's an automatic stay of proceedings. Right. So everything would be stopped subject to the first poll question that you may want to lift the stay for certain uh, advantages that you might be able to obtain. So it doesn't have to be a formal bankruptcy. A consumer proposal can put the brakes on your family court case. And, uh, you know, it's really like throwing a grenade into that litigation, right? You really, it could really disrupt the flow of the family court case, depending on the issues that the family court is dealing with. All right, so let's take a look at our audience and find out who we have with us today. Family law professionals, 64%. Uh, somebody in the bankruptcy area of law, uh, a different profession, 14%, um, learning more nine, going through separation six, have a loved one and helping them out. So a fairly sophisticated audience today. You're in the right spot. We're doing advanced topics. All right, let's get back to um, the roles of the various players. So again, sort of recapping, but it's important to understand who is all, you know, it's not, no longer a family court proceeding. You've got all these other players that are coming into this. So if you're thinking, thinking about equalization, you want to keep in mind who else uh, comes on to the stage. Linda? So thank you, Russ. The trustee's an officer of the court and has a fiduciary capacity uh, for the creditors, acts in a fiduciary capacity. The primary role is to balance the interests of the bankrupt and, and the creditors. So the main areas of responsibility is to meet with the individual to get an understanding of their financial situation and provide them with the merits and consequences of each option. Once the option is chosen, prepare documents to affect the filing, file the, the documents. Uh, if there's need for a creditor's meeting, the trustee convenes one. Um, the, Creditors file proofs of claim indicating what they're owing with backup trustee needs to review those claims, usually if there's going to be a distribution to the creditors, and then realize on the non-exempt assets for the benefit of the creditors, and subsequently apply for the bankrupt's uh, discharge. So those are the main functions of a trustee. Um, the creditors are classified into secured, preferred, unsecured, and contingent creditors. So secured creditors hold mortgages on real property, leases or finance agreements, usually on vehicles, general security agreements on assets. And in this situation would be a sole proprietor. We're not speaking of corporations. It sounds like, today. you know, you're in the airport waiting to go on the plane and then you have, you know. The different classes of people coming to go on the plane, you know, Delta Elite, your triple platinum, your first class, you so, know, sac your zone, your zone two, zone three, and then you know, zone five is down at the back of the plane where the bathroom is. It sounds like you have a hierarchy of credit, well, right? It's it's a good analogy, Russell, and 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 in many situations, you have CRA with the priority who's going to be sitting right behind the pilots. They're, yeah, so, or they are know, the pilot, really. They are the pilot, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I think the overriding point is you don't want to be any class of creditor. Right. <laughs> what else is there? No, uh, you prefer not to be in a bankruptcy situation. Yeah, yeah. No, not I get good, it. It's not a good position. All right. Well, we've got clients here now in family court who are going bankrupt. But yeah, we can't control that part of it. You're right. right. Good point. Sorry, go ahead, Linda. I, I didn't mean to. 
I did mean to interrupt, but I thought it was a good. No, this, it was it was a good interruption, Russell. It's a good interruption. Um, so continuing with secured creditors, you have um, PPSA registration for storage liens and repairs, and of course the CRA with register certificates on real property. So should there be no equity for the creditors, uh, in particular, uh, a matrimonial home or a financed vehicle, the trustee generally releases its interest and the bankrupt continues with um, the payments in the normal course. Should the bankrupt wish to surrender the security, then um, the creditor has the right to file an unsecured claim for a shortfall, which in many cases, in particular vehicles, there will be a shortfall. A preferred creditors, preferred creditors are governed by Section 136 of the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act. So in this particular discussion today, child and spousal support arrears are preferred creditors for amounts owing or any lump sum owing 12 months prior to the filing of the bankruptcy. To the extent that there's funds available, preferred creditors after trustees fees and costs are paid in full before unsecured creditors. So generally- Do, do, they, go, do they go before CRA or after? If CRA has a, a claim for income tax or HST, they go before. Okay. If there's a, a if there's a, a payroll for sole proprietor, if there's source deductions that have been uh, have not been remitted, then they're a, a deemed trust creditor and they rank ahead of trustee fees and costs as well. Okay. Thank you. Go ahead. Yeah. So unsecured creditors would include child and su support, spousal support arrears, where their preferred status is already been met and there's a balance owing. So 30,000, 15 is preferred, 15 is unsecured. Equalization claims, which Howard will speak on. Costs awarded in a matrimonial proceeding um, of the spouse who has the obligation to pay those costs. So those are unsecured, but I believe Golan or Howard will be speaking uh, to that after. Legal costs, income tax and HST for sole proprietors, bank loans, lines of credit, credit cards, student loans, judgment creditors. These are all examples of, of unsecured creditors. Should there be a meeting of creditors, there could be up to five inspectors appointed and creditors can act as an inspector. And the primary role is to approve the sale of assets and the disposition of the bankrupt's discharge. Those are the two main functions that we that we see. Contingent creditors are claims that may or may not crystallize in the period of, of the bankruptcy, such as legal actions not heard by a court, assessment of a director for unpaid corporate taxes being payroll and HST, not corporate tax liabilities, um, unliquidated damages. So depending on the nature of the claim, a trustee may, not often, but may value the claim or agree to have the creditor lift the stay to continue the proceedings. And assessments against directors are always out there, but it's a process for CRA. And especially now, we're seeing that it's a long process and it's, it's not 
they're not assessing as 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 often as they did pre-COVID. Um, a lot to take in there. Um, yeah, lot to take in. Thank you. Uh, let's talk a little bit about judges, the family court, and bankruptcy court. Howard, these All are right. other, other players we need to be mindful of, right? Yeah, and I'll be brief. We generally find disputes start in family court between the spouses. And then when one spouse goes bankrupt or files a proposal, everything, as we said earlier, stops because of the stay of proceedings. So then there would be a motion, presumably in bankruptcy court, to lift the stay. And the most common reason would be to uh, determine what the value of equalization is so that we can uh, file a claim within the bankruptcy. So that's the most common, but the attendances in bankruptcy court should be one and done. The um, every, my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, every superior court judge is also a judge of the bankruptcy court, but the bankruptcy court is a different court, usually in Toronto or Ottawa, they're different locations, not where, the, where physically, where are these bankruptcy courts? Well, pre-COVID, we had we had bankruptcy court in downtown Toronto, which covered um, a wide jurisdiction, both north, east, and west uh, of Ontario. Uh, they've since added a bankruptcy court in Hamilton. There's a bankruptcy court in London, and I believe there's a bankruptcy court in Sudbury. So, depending on where your your client is. If you're up north or somewhere, you're going to have to hike it down to Toronto to go to bankruptcy court, which is going to increase expense, obviously. Right. Um, and it's a specialized court with specialized forms and rules, right? Right. So COVID virtual court assists with that problem. Yeah. Access to justice. Access to justice because you don't have to go anywhere. Great, great point. And it's super prejudicial if you have to pay your lawyer four hours to go to a bankruptcy court because the other party uh, went bankrupt. Um, some real unfairness there. Right. Okay, so conflicts. We have protecting third-party creditors and rights of spouses. I think we're going to have you take this one too, Howard. Thank you. So the obvious conflict that is inherent in the system is a bankrupt person or a debtor goes and chooses a trustee, pays the trustee for their services, they sign on the dotted line, and then the trustee represents the best interests of the creditors. So the inherent problem is the debtor comes to the trustee, lays out their whole story, tells them all the warts and blemishes and secrets, and then the trustee uses it against them. It's not the trustee's fault. It's not something that we have to you know, govern the trustees, it's inherent in the system, but it's an obvious conflict. So I guess the, the easy way, but not costly way to address that is if the debtor gets some legal advice before going to a trustee. What I've often seen as well is someone goes to a trustee, tells them their story, the trustee tells them, well, you're going to have all these problems. So then they go to a different trustee and they refine their story so that 
That second trustee doesn't know the problem. Start shopping around, yeah. Right. Find someone who's going to give you the answer you want. And it's sad you see these people who do the bank go into bankruptcy. They may have a very good equalization uh, claim, and they're just kind of shooting themselves in the foot. But oftentimes they do it because they can't fund family law litigation and they just get overwhelmed. That's correct. And then the trustee in a perfect world would pursue the equalization claim for the benefit of the creditor. But we were talking before, if this if this is a joint family venture claim, uh, trustees aren't equipped to necessarily litigate those issues. Family lawyers have problems doing that. So uh, it really is, you know, a dark hole they're going into. But let's find out what our audience is thinking and run another poll. Thank you for that, Howard. All right, what happens to the mat? These, and we base these poll questions sort of on what our clients are asking us, right? Or, or what they're asking their trustee. So this one is, um, what happens to the matrimonial home if one spouse goes bankrupt? Give everybody a few moments to give us their input. Some great, um, great questions coming in. Thank you everybody for sending your questions in. This one's for you, Linda. Child and spouse supporter. So our child and spouse support creditors and rank ahead of mortgages lines of credit mortgages mortgages would rank ahead in the sense that um there if there's a, a sale of a home uh the mortgage is getting paid from the home and the residual comes into the the bankruptcy estate for realization so it's a really uh it's it's a function of what what realization comes into the estate and and the the support as a preferred claim would would benefit mostly from that portion right one more quick question thank you keep them coming in audience uh maybe i'll throw this one at you golan um how does a lawyer or mediator actually do the nfp with the bankruptcy in place how do they navigate this this can get complicated uh, thank you for the question uh Russ. And just before I answer that, just a comment on the access to justice comment before, I wish that that would be expanded to family, uh, to the family proceedings as well. I think that that was a topic of uh, concern to all of us uh, during and after COVID. But uh, straight to the question again, uh, on the equalization uh, process, it's, it's practically the same way as if there was no bankruptcy. Because you have to determine if you're going for, for example, after an exempt asset at some point in time, you still need to determine what is the equalization amount. So you have to go through the NFP, through the net family property statements, and the uh, value of the assets just the same. So you have a determination of the equalization before you can go back to court and and uh, ask for the relief that you're uh, looking for. And this is one of our advanced topics. We're going to actually, it's timely. We're going to get into this just in a moment. But let's, so we've got uh, what's going to happen to the home. Other spouse gets it sold. Trustee takes it, non-bankrupt spouse. Um, our poll results are coming up right now. Um, the other spouse gets the home 0%. Well, maybe not. Uh, see what everybody thinks. The home sold 18%. Trustee takes possession 22%. Non-bankrupt spouse makes a deal with the trustee 50% um, or other. Yeah, I think certainly that's the most practical approach, right? Um, Howard, to make the deal with the trustee uh, to deal with whatever uh, equity might be there. 
That's the most practical solution, but it's not always possible because the non-bankrupt spouse doesn't have $100,000 with which to make a deal with the trustee. Um, there are a variety of reasons and, and different solutions, but that's the primary one. The other one often is have the trustee register on title, and it would only go against the bankrupt spouse's share of the home. But not all trustees want to do that because their job is to realize as quickly as possible. So that's sort of an if and when. So if the home's refinanced or sold, then they would get their claim? That's correct. For those deals, it's a really interesting solution. Is, is there a time limit or can it just be, you know, okay, I'll pay it in 20 years? Well, the trustee doesn't really want to wait 20 years, but it happens sometimes. I've just had two of those recently where the trustee waited many years. And the housing market um, appears to be taking a dip. What if they're upside down on the home? Is the trustee going to be more likely to make a deal? Like that's, let's say, that's let's all based on the equity. Exactly. Yeah, let's, say, let's say it's financed uh, for more than the home's worth. We're seeing property values drop. Would the trustee then be more likely inclined to make a deal with the other spouse? Uh, in those situations, the trustee would probably just release well, its right. interest. Right. Yeah. There's nothing there. Yeah. Nothing there. Yeah. I'll, I'll add to that. $1,000 for me to do the paperwork to release my interest. <laughs> yeah, right. Sorry, Linda, go I, ahead. I can add to that. If the discharge of the bankrupt is, is, is delayed for CRA oppositions or, uh, you know, uh, documentation that the trustee requires, and we're suddenly five years down the road, the property may increase in value due to market or mortgage repayment. So that equity has now become an after acquired asset and the trustee can do evaluation and, and, and add that in to the conditional discharge order or go to the spouse to make a settlement with her. Or if you're making the deal with the trustee, say your interest is capped at hundred grand. So if it goes up, you know, to 300,000, they're only going to get the first hundred, but Golan, you want to get in on this conversation too? Well, I thought, I thought the, uh, the, the police actually presupposes that the property is in the name of the bankrupt. Am I correct? And that that's otherwise, that's the first determination that has to be made here. Uh, who's the legal owner of the property. And then, and then you have to see what is the other spouse is doing. Is, is there a property, a property claim in equity? Is there a other a, a you know claims that may be affected uh, you know in in terms of constructive trust, resulting trust, etc. That that um, the other non-registered spouse may want to bring to the table and then go with that to the trustee for negotiation. Well, so if, that, it was, that, if it wasn't that spouse's name, it's a matrimonial home. It'd be up to the trustee to pursue the equalization payment at that point. But yeah, it's an interesting spin on that. So let's get into bankruptcy and the effect on equalization. Um, thank you for everybody for participating in the poll. We've got a lot that we're going to cover off here and um, we're a little bit behind, but I think we're good on time and we want to save time for Q&A. Please keep your questions coming in. So exempt assets. I think, uh, Howard, we're back to you on this. Thanks. Uh, the two most significant exempt assets, the first being RSPs. So RRSPs are exempt except for contributions made in the last 12 months prior to bankruptcy. So if 
the bankrupt spouse has $100,000 of RSPs and made no contributions in the last 12 months, then that 100,000 is outside of bankruptcy and not uh, available for the trustee or to the creditors. So that was a legislative change made a couple of years ago and designed to assist people who save for their retirement to still be able to save for their retirement. The other uh, common exempt asset is uh, personal injury awards, because a lot of times people go bankrupt after having a car accident and can't work for a while. So it's not all awards. It's only the portion that's attributed to pain and suffering. Anything related to lost income would fall to the trustee. So you often have personal injury lawyers trying to settle cases saying that it's all pain and suffering. And you have the trustee saying, well, it can't all be pain and suffering. So you get into that conundrum. That, but, would, be, that would be excluded in the family proceeding in any event, if it was pain and suffering, right? I believe so. But again, yeah. it's the determination of the total amount of the settlement right. all being pain and suffering. So yeah. it's exempt all over the place. And Gola and I are going to talk a little bit about strategy in terms of how what assets you're going to choose to go after. But thank you. The, um, the last point, Russ, in 10 seconds is that RESPs, reg Registered Education Savings Plans, are not exempt. So that's, that's important to know. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't think that. Okay. Um, claims that survive discharge, Linda? Child and, child and spousal support arrears are the main one that survive. Student loans, if the individual's end of study period is within the last seven years. Um, Court-imposed fines, such as parking tickets, um, traffic parking tickets, debts arising out of fraud. And uh, one that we're seeing, um, Howard and I have seen recently, a liability for a dividend that a creditor would have received had the creditor been informed of the bankruptcy. So you do have debtors that choose to, to not disclose uh, a loan to uh, a friend, family, uh, business partner, and there's a dividend paid out of 20 cents on the dollar, and the individual would have received 20 grand, let's just say, uh, that is not wiped out from bankruptcy if they were not aware of the, of the insolvency. All right. So these debts are considered Section 178 debts, and they're pursued by creditors after the discharge of the bankrupt and after the discharge of the trustee. Is that common? It's it's common. Yes. It's, okay. It's common, okay. yes. If, yes. The, if the facts are there, it is common. Yeah, okay. Yes. Assignment of claims, Howard. So the most common one here would be where a joint debt between spouses, one spouse files for bankruptcy, the other one gets a letter from the bank saying the co-spouse or the co-debtor went bankrupt. You now owe the whole amount owing on the credit card. In this case, the non-bankrupt spouse might make a settlement with the, the bank and then take an assignment of their claim so that they can hope to recover that back within the bankruptcy if there's any realizations. The simple answer is sometimes people make deals with creditors and take over their claims only for 
strategic reasons. It doesn't happen often. Okay, judicial discretion, Golan. Is there any wiggle room for judges here? Like the bankruptcy has a pretty comprehensive regime. Uh, can the judges play around here or what's happening? Well, so that, that was uh, in some of the uh, case law, when uh, you go through it, you see that uh, when judges had the, the, the sense of a injustice that occurred and they try to uh, do something different or a, basically circumvent the a bankruptcy act, they, on appeal, they were reversed. And it, it was just a, basically a telling us that that's the law and that's what you have to follow and we cannot uh, go around it. Now, in, in other occasions, you find that there are creative uh, ways of making, a, or, or making justice happen somehow through support claims and, and the quantum of, of the same. Um, other discretion that is actually is supported by case law is what happens on bankruptcy that happened a just before, you know, just at the beginning of the marriage. So if a person came with a lot of debt into the marriage and then went bankrupt during the marriage and got discharged, normally you would think you know, on an equalization, it would it would actually negate his portion for equalization because it came in or she came in with debt. But because of the bankrupts, because of the bankruptcy and these debts were, were wiped, a judge has a discretion to not necessarily put in the face value of the debts that a person came into the marriage with. So that discretion is there uh, with respect to, to bankruptcy and, and the equalization process. All right, you know, I, like Shannon's in the background keeping uh, keeping tabs on me. I, I missed the poll question. So <laughs> we're going to run the poll right now. Um, sorry about that. How are loans from friends and family treated in bankruptcy? Right, These are questions we get. The lawyer's going to get it. The trustee's going to get it. Give everybody a chance to answer that. And I had some really great questions coming in. I want to, there was a question here. Um, does the percentage ownership of the home come into play? So if a spouse goes bankrupt, let's say they own, they're on title, they're only registered to be 25% owner. Uh, is, is the trustee gonna honor that uh, percentage or what, Linda? If the uh, documentation uh, proves that it's owned 25%, it's registered on title showing 25% and the purchase and sale agreement is 25%, right. then it will be honored. Yeah, you sometimes see that, right? Parents will go on title if the, for financing and other reasons. So I, I have a young gentleman now who holds 1% on the condo. It's basically for mortgage purposes. That's exactly uh, right. Yeah. yeah. Great question. Okay. Um, friends, loans from friends and family, they get paid first, last, creditors, they lose their loan and their friendship get paid cash, I guess, down at the gas station or the ATM. <laughs> uh, so our audience, they get paid last 12%. They're listed as credit creditors, secured or unsecured, 78%, clear majority. They lose their loans and probably their friendship, 10%. Um, real quick, Linda, what, are you, what happens to friends and family in this process? What are you seeing? They should be listed as creditors. Um, 
And what are they though, or, or are they just give up? It's it's a it's it's a 50-50 situation, and we also see that uh, they're paid back through uh, through the bankruptcy because of the you know responsibility, the feeling of I can't not pay my friends and aunts, and we're seeing that. Thanksgiving um, dinners is too awkward. I'm going to pay this person back, kind of thing. It well, becomes a Christmas gift, no? That's <laughs> right, but it's that's outside the scope of bankruptcy, and right, it changes from the fact that all creditors are supposed to be treated equally. Right, right. right. So the one thing they can do is unfriend a friend. Right. It's one of the, right. And, Unlike and, them, yeah. I guess family, you don't have an option with, but things happen there. You know, it's funny, but it's so sad because these are real life situations that our clients are going through, right? Like it's just heartbreaking when you see this. They're, they borrowed from relatives and the relatives are not sitting with, a, you know, a lot of assets and they feel yeah. the obligation. They help them. They feel the obligation to pay them back. It, yeah. it From that point of view, it, it it's understandable. Yeah. All right. Let's get back into our subject matter. That is a great poll question. Uh, bankruptcy before or after the data separation Golan, uh, does it matter uh yeah it does matter it, it matters it depends on you know, which side of the fence you uh whether you're the spouse or the bankrupt right right yeah so if you a uh, if you're a spouse that goes bankrupt before separation you you're giving up your you're basically vesting your your claims in property with the trustee the moment you claim the bankruptcy right and that, that means that you, you may be losing on your option to realize on your equalization. Um, when you're doing it after, depending on, again, which side of the fence you, you, you're representing, you may be trying to get away from a cost award, and it may be the right thing to do, um, subject to, to uh, you know, judicial uh, intervention and, and lifting uh, automatic stays. But... Yeah. Uh, it does make a difference whether you're doing it before or after. I think the best thing to do here is definitely consult before you make the decision to, to go back on that's for sure. Yeah, you think of a cost awards usually prevented from taking further steps in litigation unless it's been satisfied or paid. And I guess, you know, well, I, I wiped it out in bankruptcy, so now I'm going to resume my litigation. But yeah, that, I don't know if that'd go over too good with the Superior Court judge. Effective discharge. Uh, what do we need to know on this one? So, am I taking that? Or yeah, that you're, still, you're still going if you can. Yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, well, the the effective discharge essentially, we're speaking about let's say the uh, first time bankruptcy. We have the automatic discharge within nine months, um, wipes out all the, uh, the all the claims, other than the um, the claims that are a surviving bankruptcy that were mentioned before, um, including the support claims. Um, so yeah, it basically allows the bankrupt to start fresh in generally, but on other occasion, when you think that uh, it's warranted, uh, the other side or creditor or third party may uh, present an objection and oppose the discharge and that can be extended uh, to 21 month, I believe, right, Howard? That's yeah. correct. Opposing yeah. discharge. Um, that, that's interesting. Can you think of a reason why a spouse would want to oppose discharge, um, Howard? Uh, spouses often oppose discharges for two reasons. 
one out of spite yeah and one and another because they either think that the bankrupt has undisclosed assets or undisclosed income although i would say that you don't need to wait for the discharge to deal with that you know if that's really the case bring it to the attention of the trustee early on and have that matter dealt with through the bankruptcy process and not wait till the end but a lot of times it's out of spite. Usually the ones out of spite fizzle off too, right? They run out of steam or they're not going to throw any more money at it. So right. it's sort of a knee-jerk reaction. They usually just kind of fade away after a while. That's true, but you'd be surprised how many spouses show up in court unrepresented and just take their shot. It must be tough on the bankruptcy court too, right? It um, is. It is. Yeah. Dealing with unrepresented people who don't know the process. Or the right. act. Yeah. All right. I'll so also add to that that the spouse, like any other creditor, is hoping that the court will, will grant a conditional discharge. And the more funds that are that that the bankrupt has to pay to be discharged is the greater is a greater dividend to the creditors, including the spouse. True. So that so yeah. there, it does serve a purpose. It serves uh, a purpose. Bankruptcy and support obligations. I know in family court, child support takes priority. Um, what are we, what are we looking at for child support? Do you want to lead the discussion off, uh, Linda or Howard? Who wants to start with this one? Oh, Howard, I, I you... would, yeah, child support and spousal support, as Linda said, survive bankruptcy. Um, they also come into play in the calculation of surplus income for the bankrupt person and surplus, surplus income is a whole other kettle of fish that we don't have time for. But in 30 seconds, if the bankrupt person is making, earning more money after tax than the government standard, depending on the size of the family, then a portion of that money gets paid to the trustee for the benefit of the creditors. But if the bankrupt person is paying spousal or child support, that amount is deducted as a non-discretionary expense from the calculation of surplusing. Right. I could talk about this for hours, but yeah. we don't have time for that. We could spend, for each one of these settings, probably an hour in each one. Um, right. But again, we want to try to cover as much as off as we can. That was really helpful. Okay, litigation strategies and practice tips. So we're going to start uh, with cost order, going after exempt uh, assets, finish this off, and then go into Q&A. Um, so Howard, costs. What, okay, what, so I, I've seen suggest? some cases, remote cases, where they lift the stay to allow someone to pursue cost order. I think that that's you know, remote. The norm is that cost orders are unsecured claims that fall within the bankruptcy. So again, as I said earlier, often you have court award, a very large cost award against someone, and then they go see a trustee because they can't pay $150,000 cost award. And I think that's the norm um, where those are included in the bankruptcy act. Um, collecting costs when someone goes bankrupt not not uh, not likely because it's simply an unsecured claim now as far as costs um as support i've seen that in family courts where they sometimes 
make costs considered to be or treated as support, which would help in the event that they think that someone may go bankrupt because then it would survive. And I think the best strategy, if that's what the family law lawyers are thinking, is when the judge makes a cost award to say that you know, 50% of the costs were incurred to pursue the child or spousal support. Yeah. So that would be very clear as to what portion would survive. But absent that, it's very hard to make them survive. Yeah. My, my experience is, especially, you know, costs are often characterized as supportive, it's related to a support issue. That's an effective way to send it off to the Family Responsibility Office and let them worry about collecting it um, in terms of how do you find the money. Um, so that, that's, let's get into, you covered a lot there. Thanks, Howard. Going after exempt assets. So uh, I'm going to talk about this a little bit and Golan's going to help me. Uh, having a family lawyer talking about bankruptcy law is sort of like going bungee jumping without a rope. So everybody's going to correct me. But if I get this right, um, you've got these claims that we that Linda listed that will uh, survive the bankruptcy. And obviously, one of the biggest ones, the pension. Uh, some pensions are excluded. <clears throat> you can go after it for equalization. Um, but you need an order. Um, you need to get your order before the bankrupt's discharge. And um, generally, my understanding is the courts generally will lift the automatic stay to allow spouses to go after these exempt assets. And uh, and if Section 815 of the Bankruptcy Acts requires a litigation um, in bankruptcy court unless you get the leave to proceed in family court. So... In, in terms of a practical uh, tip, my, my tip would be hire somebody like Howard or a lawyer in whatever city the bankruptcy court is and have them do it. They're there every day. It's sufficient. They know the rules. They know the judges as opposed to traveling down to in traffic to Toronto for a day and waiting in bankruptcy court. And it's probably going to be three or five grand just to take that step. I would delegate it to somebody local, but um What's your strategy here, Golan? Do you agree with that? Well, firstly, I think you you covered it uh, pretty well. Uh, the only thing I on Section eighty one a sub five of the Bankruptcy Act, I think that the idea there is that anything to do with the bankruptcy is dealt with the bankruptcy court unless that court gives you permission or grants you leave to proceed with a claim in a family court. So that's the reason that a one of the strategies regarding property claims would be to advance all the equity claims against the property in the in the family court and then ask for that to be preceded in family court but granting the getting the leave from the bankruptcy court um on the exemption of assets yeah pension is is the uh a one of the most popular ones that you want to go after but let's not forget again that before you go against the pension asset you have to go and equalize uh, do the calculation for equalization just as if there was no bankruptcy so this is where you know how much you're claiming from the pension you cannot just simply go and equalize just the pension as a 50 50 kind of uh, asset you still have to go through the equalization process 
That'd be a reason to oppose the discharge. If I if I understood, Linda, you have nine months. You might not be you might be, not be able to litigate and determine equalization in the family court in nine months. You're not going to get to trial until a year or two later. Uh, so I guess that would be a reason to oppose the discharge. Is that right, Linda? Well, the nine months is where there's no surplus income. Uh, right. There's no so if if there's surplus, it's 21 months. And certainly, if there's uh, a benefit to the creditors, then the 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 district, if it's nine months, it would be opposed to allow the, the 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 proceedings to continue so that the creditors can maybe realize on. We're talking about going after an exempt asset, right? So the creditors aren't going to get any of that in any event. Do you agree, Howard? I agree. I agree. You want to get that number. You go after the pensions, and that doesn't really involve the the estate because it's exempt, anyways. Get that equalization number before the discharge. If the discharge is coming up, then you would oppose it, right? Yes. That'd be be a pretty good reason. A legitimate reason to oppose it. Because the family court doesn't have the resources or time to adjudicate the matter in nine months. Or you you might be waiting on a pension valuation. It could be a number of reasons why there's delay. Like you said, the key is to to do this before the discharge. Otherwise, basically everything is there. So we've talked about support and characterizing it. One last quick uh, topic, then we're going to get into Q&A. How does the lawyer for the bankrupt get paid? Okay, one more poll. This is great. Cash, legal aid, friends credit card, payday loans, GoFundMe, or other. So we'll give every, the audience a moment to get their answers in. Linda, if somebody goes bankrupt, are the credit cards and line of credits cut off? Yes, they are. So, you know, that person's really limited in terms of how they're going to access legal counsel, right? For the family. Generally, court. generally family will help them out for, for, uh, if they need if they need representation, often we see family helping out. Okay. Let's see what our audience thinks on this question. Um, you look at that family and friends. Um, they agree with you. Legal aid, eighteen percent cash. Eighteen. The lawyers uh, get in the envelope of cash in the parking mm-hmm. lot. There, uh, GoFundMe, three percent. Uh, there, we'll get in the Q and A. Okay. So uh, final, I, would, I would just uh, I would just add one thing. Yeah. Better. The bankrupt now is no longer paying credit cards, is no longer paying for all the bills that are in the bankruptcy, but yet they still have their income. Okay. So they have their income and they don't have all these expenses. So they actually do have money. They're in a better spot to pay. That's right. Right. So unless unless they're paying back uh, aunts and and other friends, Howard. (laughs) Yes. They got Thanksgiving coming up. They got to get those loans paid off. All right, so for counsel, what should lawyers be mindful of? If you're representing a bankrupt uh, in a family court proceeding, how do you protect your account, Howard? Quick practice tip, maybe 30 seconds or less. Uh, The greatest thing is get retainers somehow. Now, there was a question in the Q&A about what happens if you have money in your trust account on the date of bankruptcy. The legal answer is that money is being held in trust for the bankrupt, so it should go to the trustee. Most trustees don't really insist upon money from lawyers' trust accounts because everybody's entitled to a representation. 
but legally speaking, it, it, it vests in the trustee. From a practical standpoint, the answer might be to have the person's brother, mother, sister pay the retainer. What, you know, again, practically speaking, who knows where the money actually comes from, but the check or the e-transfer goes from somebody other than the bankrupt so that the argument can be made it's not the bankrupt's money. I always wonder about that, right? You get the list of uh, the, the bankrupt's affairs and you're in family court and the other family lawyer is not listed there, right? There's no debt sold to that person. You think, how? what's going on here, right? But uh, Shannon's back. I'm going to get in trouble because we've been having too much fun here. Uh, but uh, welcome back, Shannon. We started a minute late because I was going on about the soundtrack. So we will go to 101. We're never late, but I started late. I'll take over <laughs> for that. No, it's a, it's a good sign. It's a good discussion happening. So just want to thank all of our panelists, Linda Howard, Golan, and Russell for being here for the discussion today and to all of our audience members for all of your participation. I just want to make a quick note that um, there will be a survey that pops up in your browser following the webinar. Um, and this is really great um, for us just to get some insight into our audience and get your feedback um, as we continue to progress and grow our virtual event series. Um, and just a sign of our appreciation to everyone who fills out that survey, we'll be providing an ebook um, that will be sent later on. Um, but we want to at least get another, uh, another question in before we sign off today. I know a lot have been answered throughout, but just one that came in in advance. So, it's does a claim for equalization of a spouse's pension survive the discharge of both spouses um, in this particular scenario bankruptcies and discharges for both spouses occurred after the date of separation and before any claim was started. Howard thoughts. Uh, I would say that you know the first answer is equalization falls within the bankruptcy and is discharged upon the discharge of the bankrupt period full stop. However, if the family court has determined that one spouse gets 46% of the other spouse's pension, that would survive. But if it's determined through the equalization process, that would be gone. I'm wondering if you could then go to family courts and have it reclassified, that I don't know. Well, interesting. A lot, a lot to cover off, so complicated. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for clarifying that, Howard. And thank you again to all of our panelists, all of our audience today. Um, we want to thank you once again. And as always, we welcome and appreciate your feedback, as I mentioned through that survey, but also feel free to reach out to me at shannon at russellalexander.com with any feedback for our team. And so we just want to thank you once again and wishing you all a great day. Thank you, Howard. Thank you, Linda. Thank, thank you, you. That was thank hugely you informative. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you, Have a good afternoon, everybody. Thanks for the audience uh, participation in poll questions. Absolutely.